This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Yeah, all right. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. Um, this is our BCPT school 2015. And I'm here with Brian Kolb, who this morning was in his lecture dealing with the whole question of, of epigenetics and how in some experience can affect our behavior even for a number of generations after us. So um, so what is what is specific about this, this epigenetic perspective on, on behavior and changes in behavior? Well, I think that historically people had this view of nature and nurture and that most of what we developed, we learned, and it was sort of independent of anything else. And I think what we now know is that there's an uh, interaction between the activity of genes in the brain and experiences. So specific experiences turn different genes on and off. And when they're doing that, um, it alters how the brain responds to other experiences. So, for example, if you're taking um, a drug, and let's just say it's nicotine, the nicotine is changing the expression of genes in the brain, and genes, the job of genes is to make proteins. So what the proteins are making is, are different, and so the organization of synapses, circuits, is altered by, by the drug in an indirect way. But it turns out that it depends on which genes are already on and off, so that the baseline um, gene profile is going to actually influence how experiences do this. Mm-hmm. But now, in some sense, anything that the cell does, or yeah, almost anything, will have an impact on gene transcription. Yes. So, so however, there's a certain subset of, of, of gene transcription that are of specific relevance to this question of the epigenetics where, where, as I say, the gene expression and environment are coming together. So is it is there a specialized, if you want, system that is supporting these epigenetic changes to behavior? That's the general belief, but if you now say, where is that system and what is it, we don't know. Okay. Yeah. But that's sort of the assumption that we that Yeah, we and, and it may be that, that it's microRNAs that are changing uh, and non-coding parts of the, of the gene that are changing um, and controlling all of this, but we're still pretty naive on how that works. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so, so can, can you can you give me what's a typical example that you would have in mind that really expresses most clearly these epigenetic impacts that we have on on the phenotype? Well, if you look, I mean, we've looked a lot at stress and various kinds of stressors because stress produces such big changes, and these changes persist. So we know that. Uh, changes actually can cross at least four generations. Um, if if you experience stress in utero, so gestational stress, we know that there are changes in a whole bunch of things, um, and these changes persist. So we're looking at different kinds of stressors and trying to compare them and see if we can get some understanding as to which pathways are actually changed um, by the by the stressors. So it, basically, we're taking a sledgehammer and trying to see, okay, if you use a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. what do you get? Rather than something more subtle like 
um, social interaction, which would be much harder. I'm sure it's doing things, and our example of play behavior is one example where the way in which animals play is going to alter gene expression and it's going to alter synaptic organization, but it's much more subtle. Hmm. But now, um, if, if we talk about these kinds of changes, um, how, would you, how would you measure those? If you now say, okay, there's some environmental, let's say a stressor that is impacting uh, a mother rat, now the offspring will be changed as a phenotype. What are you looking for in that phenotype? So th there are various things you can do. So the first measure, so when the rubber hits the road, this is all about behavior. And so we're looking for changes in behavior. If we find none, it might be that our measurements are too simple, they're not sophisticated enough, or it may be that there aren't any changes. Um, so at that first we're looking for changes in behavior. When we see them, we know we're on the right track. Then the second thing we're interested in is, okay, can we see changes in the circuits in the brain? And where are those changes in the circuits? Because you can't look at gene expression everywhere. It's just not practical. So you, you're looking for a needle on a haystack. So we look at uh, using um, brain staining, using a Golgi technique, we can look at the changes in the number of synapses on cells. Once we see a region that looks like it's showing significant changes, we then can zero in there and say, okay, there's where we'll take our tissue and do our, our gene chip arrays or whatever it is we're doing to try and identify the genes. Now, the problem is the ideal thing would be to find one gene. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, you're going to find cascades of genes. So we often are finding 1,000 or 1,500 genes. That's useless. So what you have to do is to see, okay, these are going to be related to one another in some way. And so we're looking at um, trying to get some sense of what the pathways are. Are they all related to the production of uh, proteins related to synaptogenesis or neurogenesis or um, some other some other thing. So that's mm -hmm. the process. Behavior, and then where in the brain are things changing, and then drill down with your um, genes. And we start with looking at uh, global methylation. So, so what methylation is telling you is that if you have a change in methylation up or down, you have more or less genes being expressed. The more methylation, the less gene expression. Once you've seen that, then you can say, okay, that, that's just a, a clue that something's going on, but it doesn't tell you much. It just tells you something happened. Then we can look at the actual genes themselves because it's expensive and you don't want to waste time looking at in places where nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So now, uh, a first example that that you that you emphasized a lot was sort of the, the role of tactile stimulation yep. as as an epigenetic factor. So how does that play out exactly? So just to give the background, if we if we um, take young animals and we use a little brush and we tactilely stimulate them for 15 minutes, three times a day for 10 days, let's say. We can, and then wait till they're adults. We can see changes in their behavior. So they're, we see enhanced cognitive skills, better memory, better learning. Um, we, I don't know about perceptual skills. We haven't done that. Um, but then we can look in the brain and say, okay, are there changes in synaptic organization? Yes. So where are they? And it turns out with tactile stimulation, it's pretty widespread. And then we can say, okay, what are the changes in gene expression? And can that give us some clues to what the tactile stimulation is actually doing? The advantage of that is if we now want to use that tactile stimulation as a therapy, let's say for an animal that was stressed, can we reverse the effects of the stress and reverse the effects? Um, 
of the gene expression. Well, if it turns out that it's totally different systems of genes, it's going to be a tougher sell than if there's some relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. But now uh, you also emphasized um, the release of FGF2 yes. as a result of, of tactile stimulation. So yes. why do you emphasize that factor so, so much? So we started um, looking at FGF2 for other reasons um, because we th- we knew that in vitro it stimulates neurogenesis. And so we originally thought, well, maybe we'll be able to use FGF2 to stimulate neurogenesis or maybe the tactile stimulation will increase neurogenesis. Um, so that's why we started with it, and it turns out it did seem to um, be released with enhanced t- or tactile stimulation, enhanced the release of FGF2. And so then we thought, okay, can we see a pathway in the brain related to this? Is there an increase in the genes related to um, FGF2 receptors or the production of FGF or whatever? So really, it's one of these things that's your favorite molecule by accident. But mm-hmm. once you found something... Let's, let's stick with it, and we'll see what we can get from it. Right. Okay. So be, because um, also other substances are released uh, in response to tactile stimulation, right? Like, so, like endorphins, for instance. Sure. And yeah. so are um, probably cholinergic systems in the skin that are related to pain and whatnot, right? All of those things are released too. And so we have looked at acetylcholine levels, and they do change too. Uh, but we haven't pursued that and haven't seen any evidence in the epigenetics that acetylcholine mm. is really going to be uh, a likely candidate for the big one, if you like. Right. Okay. So now, an important um, from there, you do, so after tactile stimulation, but also also identifying a possible a possible pathway of then such an uh, epigenetic uh, um, channel, because that means the tactile stimulation is also then uh, already let's say, with, with the mother, right, the pregnant mother, and then the stimulation would then have an effect on, on the pups. So what's the behavioral impact that that would have? So, I mean, there's two, two issues here. One is, how do we know that the tactile stimulation hasn't changed the mother's brain and it therefore changes her behavior towards the pups, and that's what's doing it? We don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know that if we look in the brains of the pups, we see change in FGF2 receptors, for example. And if we look um, at their behaviors, we're going to see enhanced cognitive behaviors, enhanced motor behaviors, um, and not so much species-typical behaviors, but like um, play and so on. Um, So we know that whatever the FGF2 is doing to the mum and the the fetus is producing these behavioral outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but then you actually made you made quite a big jump, right? Because then we looked at at the growth of vocabulary yep. in, in in humans. So, how is that? Um, what's the effect that you observe there? So, the um, idea there is that experience early in life is going to make a huge difference to the development of language. I'll give you a simple example, and that is when you're a month old or a newborn, you can discriminate all speech sounds in all languages. And a few months later, you're losing that. So if you're only exposed to Dutch, for example, mm-hmm. you're not going to find Korean so easy. You're going to have difficulty discriminating those speech sounds, and the longer we go, the, the um, less able you are. So we're going to have that going on. The other thing we're going on is, is that exposure to words 
makes a huge difference to the development of cognitive abilities. But it's, it's the exposure to words isn't just hearing the words, it's actually using the words. So um, some people will call this serve and return. So if I say, Paul, um, what did you do today? I'm expecting a response. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, you're listening to radio or television, you're not responding, and so you're not using language in the same way. So there's a really interesting experiment which children, and I forget the age, it was like one and a half or two, um, were either watching somebody teach them Japanese or a Japanese person was in a screen and there was serve and return. So they had to say um, the sounds. And it turns out if, if they were actually interacting with an individual, there was a social aspect. The kids learned Japanese words, whereas the ones who were doing it on a television monitor didn't. Mm-hmm. So that serve and return seems to be important. So what is it about that? Well, there's a social aspect. Uh, and if you're actually teaching an infant um, things, there's a lot, normally a lot of contact. So you're getting tactile stimulation uh, of them. You're, they're sitting on your lap or your arms around them or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So all of these factors are going together. So then if you say, well, why is it that children who live in higher socioeconomic status houses have a larger vocabulary? Is it because their parents are smarter? No. Their parents have a larger vocabulary, so they're exposed by age three to about a million more words than the kids in the lower SES families. Um, not to, not a million different words, but a million more words total that they're exposed to. A lot of them are different words. Uh, and lar- largely it's because, the, for one reason or another, the higher SES families, there's more serve and return. Mm-hmm. So there's more discussion about things than there is in the low SES families, perhaps because the caregivers in the uh, more wealthy families have more time. Mm-hmm. Or that there is a caregiver that's hired that's there all the time, a nanny or whatever it might be. Whereas in the um, less well-off families, um, they don't have that. Mm-hmm. Or they may just be interacting with siblings. And, of course, siblings aren't going to have as large a vocabulary, and they may not serve in return um, in the same way as adults. Mm-hmm. And the effect of this is to get kids on a trajectory so that they're learning more and more words. And, and as I mentioned this morning, um, the kids who at age 36 months have a vocabulary that's about three times as big as the kids uh, who are less well-off, that difference just can, continues to get larger and larger and larger. And so by um, age 11, um, the, those kids in the high SES families have a larger vocabulary than the mums of the other kids. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned the fact that you could say, well, school is going to reverse this. So once they get to school, they're all going to be exposed to the same. That's true. But the, kid, the um, less fortunate kids are way behind. And a study in New Zealand showed that after uh, eight years of school, it didn't make any difference. The kids who were low are still low. The kids who are high are even better. And so we need to do something in school to try and reverse this. And part of it may be to increase the amount of serve and return for these lower SES kids, more interaction to try and uh, get them use, using language more mm-hmm. uh, aggressively. But now you could also argue that, that you mentioned stress earlier, yeah. that these sort of lower uh, socioeconomic status families have also higher stress. And Absolutely. That the real explanation is more at the end of stress than at the end of, let's say, exposure to language. They're obviously intertwined. Um, so stress is clearly going to be an issue. So one of the ways you could study it is retrospectively, in a sense, and that is look at stress levels 
in the two groups and, and try and um, tease that out. People are trying to do that. Uh, that and as well as diet and a variety of other things. Mm-hmm. One of the best studies on this is done in Cuba, and it's, it's a social experiment. So Castro, it turns out, was really interested in children. So after the revolution, uh, he set up, uh, he changed the educational system, and they started pouring resources into children, and children had to go to um, well, the mums, first of all, to what were called polyclinics. So they had to report monthly to this nurse and if they didn't show up, they went and found them and brought them in. And the polyclinics are associated with schools. And so when UNESCO um, did their first studies on Latin American skills and kids, they compared kids in Cuba to kids in Chile, Argentina, Mexico, and so on. And what they found was that the kids in Cuba were significantly better mm-hmm. in both um, literacy and, and uh, arithmetic skills. So the question is, well, is it just that Latin America isn't, isn't all that good and this little bit of extra experience in Cuba worked? There's two ways to look at that. One is to say, well, I'm from Canada, to say, well, how do Canadian kids do? We're probably better than the um, uh, Cuban kids, and the answer is no, we're not. We're actually less good than the Cuban kids. Mm-hmm. Um, well, can you take what they did in Cuba and apply that in less advantaged places. So there was a study in South Carolina working with children uh, from disadvantaged um, black families. They used the same system, and they ended up with the Cuban scores. Similar study done in Mexico, same outcome. So it looks like pouring resources in early uh, makes a big difference. And there's a, another uh, UNESCO study, it was an OECD study, looking at literacy skills. And they, they identify five levels of literacy. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have literacy level five um, because of your education and, and you know experiences. But the the average person doesn't. And in Canada, about 42% of the population is considered illiterate, even though they all went to school. So their levels one or two. In the United States, it's even higher, and in Britain, it's higher as well. The United States is about 56% is considered illiterate. So. Um, this is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at other countries. So if you look at Sweden, it's about 30%. So are Swedes innately smarter than Brits or Canadians or Americans? I prefer to think not. What's the difference? They pour more resources, just like Cuba does, into early childhood development. Mm-hmm. And that has seems to have a huge impact on language skills and subsequent literacy, which mm-hmm. I mean, literacy has a huge impact on your health and your income. Mm-hmm. But... The consequence of that is also that maybe the real impact is actually before children go to school. Oh, it is. Uh-huh. There's no question right. that it is. It's in those first um, three years probably. Right. So then what's the benefit of going to school? Well, you're learning information, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you and I went to school for a long time and we learned a lot of information. Um, so why didn't the, the people who were in levels one and two benefit so much? Um, they were behind the eight ball to start with, and it wasn't that they were stupid, to use a sort of blunt term. They really um, were set on a trajectory that was disadvantageous. Mm-hmm. So the challenge here, and the Swedes have got it right, is to intervene really early mm-hmm. and in those first three years and put the money there rather than trying to reverse things when the kids are 10 or 11 when it's too late. Right. But then... Um a key factor that, that you emphasize a lot 
is is notion of stress and also you looked a lot at stress in rats and how does it impacts uh, their offspring or how it in, in, uh, impacts their their mates mm-hmm. so um so you, you take a rat uh, i understand the, the main procedure to induce stress is to put them on a raised platform and that's in sort of a uh, predator uh, anxiety yep. that they are exposed to that's a source of stress and now you observe a number of, of interesting effects right so so rats just on their own rats that are exposed to that that stress what does it do to their to their brain and their behavior just if i take an adult rat and i would put it on this platform Okay. For a number of times. Okay, so we've done that, mm-hmm. just taking adult rats, and uh, we increase their anxiety. We affect their ability to learn complex motor skills. Um, we see big changes in the organization of synapses in um, prefrontal cortex and different effects on different parts of prefrontal cortex, and we see changes in um, gene expression. Now, it's a bit confounded because how do we know that the behaviors that they're exhibiting now, the anxiety isn't producing the changes in gene expression. Well, they don't know that. Mm-hmm. There's no way for me to to um, separate those two things, except by correlation and say the ones who are the most anxious, do they show bigger changes? Yeah, but that's still confounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very difficult. But but we do know that we can produce similar effects in adults as we can produce indirectly in the, in the developing brain. Mm-hmm. So now how do you assess anxiety in those rats? So we can do it in a variety of ways. Um, the simplest way is to put animals in a situation where they can hide and be safe or they can go out and explore. And the, the inference here, the implication is that animals who um, hide are afraid and the ones who go out and explore are not. Well, I think you mentioned in a question this morning that well, how do I know that this doesn't make them more active? So there's another test you can use. We haven't actually done this yet, but we're going to, and that is it's called um, a burying test. So if some, let's imagine you're in an environment and there's this little probe that comes out and you go and you touch it and you get a shock and you're a rat. Not a bad shock, but like a carpet shock. Okay? So you, you get this shock. Um, animals that are anxious will bury that probe. They'll cover it up. And the more anxious they are, the more they cover it up. Animals that think it's trivial uh, for whatever reason because they're on Valium or something at the time go, psh, Never mind. Mm-hmm. I'll just avoid it. Right. So we can. That's another measure of anxiety that we're gonna we're gonna cover that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and another way you could do this is to take animals that appear to be anxious, for example, in that plus maze, and give them anxiolytics and see whether or not that reduces the effect you've seen it does. Right. But now, okay. So so we have the adult the adult rat. But now if what you also told us, if, if I take this adult rat and I bring it back to its mate, they will actually communicate about their experience. Yeah, so they, rats have a very complex set of songs that, I'll use the term loosely, songs that they sing. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and the rat that's stressed will come back and sing a series of different distressed songs, so life is crap songs, and the mate will sing back songs that are usually associated with happy things. Life is good. Hmm. And this goes on for hours. And apparently, this is an inference not proven, the hearing this distress song for so long is stressful. And that affects the offspring of the what we call the bystander uh, animal. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then 
what's the impact on the offspring? How strong is that impact as compared to the mother having been exposed to that stress herself directly? I think the best answer is the effect is different. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we see an effect. We see increased anxiety. We see reduction in brain weight. We see uh, impaired motor skills. But in each case, it's not as big as the direct stress. It's a smaller effect. Mm-hmm. So the next question is, well, can you vary the intensity of stress given directly to the mom? And would you see, so for example, we instead of putting them on that platform for 20 minutes, put them on the platform for 10 minutes. Would you see a different effect? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So the intensity of the stress seems to make a difference. And so we're mimicking a low, lower intensity stress um, using the bystander stress. Right, exactly. Yeah. But then uh, the offspring will show uh, also higher anxiety, as we saw earlier in the adult rat exposed to the stress. Yes. Or would it also show other kinds of behavioral uh, changes? We can actually look at behavior um, at about nine days. And there's a variety of behavioral tests you can use to try and look at nervous system development. And it looks like rats exposed to that kind of stress are delayed in development by about a day. They're slower to develop some of the the early uh, behaviors. So we can see it right away. Uh, If we look at adults, we see changes in cognitive skills, motor skills uh, in particular. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the questions we've been asking is, well, if you've had that early stress... Um, how do you respond to stressors later? Is there any kind of inoculation effect, an advantage? And the answer is, it kind of looks like there is. That if you've had that early stress, that a later stressor, say as a juvenile, isn't as effective in changing your brain. The, it's like you've been inoculated against mm-hmm. stress. So right. we're, we're pursuing that now mm-hmm. and varying the age of the second stress and the first stress and trying to see, okay, how does that work? But that means you might have paid a price for that in terms of your cognitive abilities. You may have paid a price for that, but, but you may have paid, you may have had, gained an advantage in coping skills. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. But it's a trade-off. It's, it's not a trade-off. something comes for free. Exactly. And then th- that might mean that also the offspring, now the third generation, might also again be still under the influence of that stress that then their um, their grand parent was exposed to. So how far down the lineage would this go? Well, my colleague, Gerlinda Metz, has been studying this, and we've done a couple of experiments with her, and we've gone to the fourth generation, and we can still see effects. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the interesting effects is on the gestational age at birth of, say, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren offspring, and it turns out that those early stressors are actually changing the length of gestation by half a day or so. Um, so to what extent is that the cause of all of this rather than the stress itself? Don't know. So these, mm-hmm. you can see it starts to get complicated. Um, but the reason that she's doing, I'm not interested so much in the uh, gestational period, but the reason she's doing it is because in humans, it looks as though stressful experiences will do the same thing. They'll mm-hmm. change. You get more premature babies. Mm-hmm. And so what's that doing? Right. Yeah. But then do you see this wash out? So. After how many generations would it be washed out? Well, it has to wash out. I mean, mm-hmm. it, logically, it has to wash out, and you're going to have regression to the mean. So Michael Meany at uh, McGill has looked at it in a slightly different way. What he's done is say, okay, we don't stress anybody. We'll just look at the endogenous behavior of mums, and what he identifies is mums who 
do a lot of licking and grooming of their offspring, and mums who don't do as much. So you have a normal curve. Let's look at the two tails. Can you breed for that? Mm-hmm. And it turns out you can't, that there's a slow regression to the mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and why would you even care about licking and grooming? Because it's related to behavior, just like the tactile stimulation is mm-hmm. related to behavior. Um, and so, but over time, it seems to, to go away. And because right. we thought, well, we could just breed for this. And, and, uh, and no, it doesn't mm-hmm. work. But now there must be a range of stress to which the animal is sort of genetically, let's say, prepared. Yes. That it can tolerate and it will not have these kinds of epigenetic knock-on effects. Yes. So how broad is that range? That's a good question. I mean, clearly, if you think about the old psychological inverted U function for stress, you need some stress or you're not awake, Mm -hmm. right? If you have too much stress, you're dead. And so where exactly in that inverted U function is the effect um, optimal, mm-hmm. and when is it worse? Right. And so that's the kind of experiment that one needs to do mm-hmm. to try and figure that out. We don't know that. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's a level of stress that nature is expecting to mm-hmm. encounter. There has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's had millions of years to adapt to that and, and to expect it. Mm-hmm. So um, when we talk about brain plasticity, we talk about experience expectant. The brain is expecting certain kinds of experiences. If they don't, if it doesn't get it, or it gets too much of it, it goes, "Whoa, what's this, what's going on?" And, and you, right. yeah. But not the interpretation in this case is rather non-specific because we say, "Well, there's some environmental manipulation leading to stress on the animal, uh, and the stress then has an epigenetic impact." Yeah. But maybe with this manipulation, you could argue, "Well, maybe the impact is very specific. It is basically." telling this this mother rat directly or indirectly that this is an environment filled with predators. Yes. And that that then the epigenetic effect is actually a very specific adaptation, which is weird, let's say, stay hidden more, uh, don't go out a lot, avoid open spaces. So yeah. what we then interpret as a non-specific impact of stress is maybe very specific adaptation to an, a world that is filled with predators. Absolutely. And if you... If you think about the Barker hypothesis, which is a nickname for that kind of idea, um, if you look at the onset of um, adolescence in animals who were stressed, it's earlier. So we see this. So why would that be? Well, they're going to have. If it's a dangerous world, you want to have your baby sooner. You don't have the luxury of waiting. Mm-hmm. And whereas the animals that are um, raised by moms who are very attentive, it's later. Mm. Um, so again, it looks like it's adapting to the environment that's going to be there. Which environment, which adaptation is is correct? Well, it depends on what the environment turns out to be. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, but then there might also be the other extreme. If you have animals that have zero stress, like it's it's the Wally world. I don't know if you if you remember that animation movie of the oh, humans yeah. all living in outer space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being fed uh, high sugar or high glucose drinks all day long. Um, so. It, would you also see epigenetic change when you have a, a world that is really zero stress or like understressed? I would think you would because using the experience expectant model, the brain is expecting stress. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of it, um, it's going to change. There's going to be some sort of change. Now, mm-hmm. to do this experimentally would be a bit of a challenge. Right. Um, but in principle, mm-hmm. as, a, as a mind experiment, mm-hmm. a thought experiment, yes. that should be the case. Right. So now... So we have a bit of an insight now in the, in, the, in the stress case and then also these effects that it has epigenetically. But another manipulation that you have looked at um, 
is drugs, different mm -hmm. kinds of drugs of abuse. Do you think the impact of drugs of abuse is, is let's say, similar to the impact that stress has, or is it? So when we did our um, adult stress study, we compared the effects directly to getting either nicotine or amphetamine repeatedly. So we've only used stimulants for this experiment to ask this very question. Mm -hmm. The magnitude of the gene expression changes are similar. It's different pathways that are changed. So the answer is, yeah, I think we're on the right track here. And we do know that being exposed to stress early sensitizes the brain to, to make it more sensitive to drugs, um, stimulants anyway. Mm -hmm. We don't know about other drugs. We do know that every psychoactive drug we've looked at, every class of psychoactive drugs we've looked at, so stimulants, depressants, anxiolytics, antipsychotics, antidepressants, all leave a footprint in the brain that looks to be permanent mm -hmm. if you're a rat. And I can use an anecdote and say that my father-in-law um, quit smoking 40 years ago, but he says even now he'll wake up in the morning and say, I'd like a cigarette. So that's a long term effect. Is he still an addict? Well, he would be if he started, if he mm -hmm. started taking it. I'm sure he'd start smoking it, and he thinks so too. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people who are smokers will say it happened. I, I took a cigarette and I'm back, mm -hmm. and I've got, to, I've got to stop all over again, and right. it's not easy. But now the, the changes to the brain, like say if you would look at also get the spine count on, on neurons, in, for instance, the prefrontal cortex, yep. which is one area that you, that you looked at mm -hmm. with, with uh, great attention, would those changes be comparable in, in the epigenetic case as those of stress, or is the, would the, the, the knock-on effect be different? Like if we take a, a mother rat exposed to different kinds of drugs, what is the impact on her offspring? Is it comparable to the stress case, or well, are the changes very different? The changes are probably different. So here's, I can do it from the anatomy and then make an, an inference from that. If we look at the effects of stimulants um, on medial prefrontal cortex, we get an increase in spine density. If we look at orbital frontal cortex, we get a decrease in spine density. What happens if we look at stress? We get the reverse. So what we see from stress is we see a decrease in spine density in medial frontal cortex and an increase in orbital frontal cortex. You might say, well, how do you account for that? Well, let's use a different class of drugs. Let's use opiates. If we look at opiates, it looks like stress. So it's going to depend on the drug type that mm -hmm. you're using. So opiates look, uh, look like stress. Stimulants look like the reverse of stress. In both cases, it's being changed, but clearly the mechanisms are not the same. We haven't done epigenetics with the uh, opiates, mm -hmm. so I don't know if it's more similar or not. Right. But now, what, what you were mentioning is that if you look at these stressors as non-stressed or um, drugs, non-drug animals, that actually the morphology of, of um, the dendrite and the spines on the dendrite is rather different in the sense that in, let's say, the, the healthy control case, you have a certain spacing of these spines that might be absent under either the stress or the drug condition. Right. Right. So what? How in, how relevant is that for understanding then of these developmental and epigenetic uh, processes? Well, I think that one of the things it tells us is that subsequent experiences are acting on a different brain. So let's suppose your mom was a smoker. Forget about the effects of carbon monoxide. Let's just pretend the effect is nicotine. Mm -hmm. um, your brain has changed. We've, we've shown that. Um, and you respond to experiences in a different way. Mm 
later in life. Same is true of stress. So your brain has changed. You respond to experiences such as drugs um, differently later in life. So we, we see these, what I'm going to call metaplastic effects, that sort of compound. And if you think about it, I mean, human's life is not you get a drug and then we kill you. It's one experience after another experience after another experience. And so this this um, collage, if you like, of experiences are mm-hmm. all... Uh, meshing together to give you the final outcome. So this makes it in humans pretty darn hard to to control. So you're going to expect huge individual differences, and of course we see that. Mm-hmm. But do you then look at development? Because in some sense there's, if you want, a normal brain yeah. with sort of a, a developmental structure to the morphology of the cell, which is then a scaffold in which these fu- future experiences are are placed. Right. So what would a scaffold look like for the healthy brain? And, and just a cell morphology of of, these, of, a, of a prefrontal or medial prefrontal cortex. You, you mentioned one thing, which is, for instance, the spacing between the spines, which I found interesting because you were suggesting with that that you would have, let's say, an optimal initialization of, of, of the dendrite with yeah. sort of an optimal spacing yeah. so that future experience could be more easily linked yeah. into the, those structures. So yeah, so we've done experiments in which we've given animals tactile stimulation or we've placed them in complex environments early and compared that to the effects of tactile stimulation or complex environments as adults. The effect is the opposite. So in the young brain, we have larger spacing between those spines, although the dendrites are the same length. So there's fewer connections, and it looks as though it's you can add connections much faster um, in this case. Um, in adults, you see an increase in spine density in both situations, um, and it, it's, it's clearly somehow changing the brain in a different way. What we haven't done and, and um, is to try and get behavioral tests that are sensitive enough to see is there a difference. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is that the behavioral tests we use are designed to identify animals with brain injuries. They're not designed to do the experiments we're doing, so they're they're a bit naive in terms of what we're measuring. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfortunate problem at this point. Uh, and the same with the epigenetics. We haven't actually compared the two in the way we have with um, the dendritic organization because the, the, the dendritic organization is cheaper to do and simpler to do than mm-hmm. the epigenetics. Right. But now you also mentioned on the one of the spines, the generation of spines, that's the pruning of spines. Yeah. And also this pruning process might be affected because this is also a, a regulated process. Yes. It's not a random process, no. right? So do you, if we don't talk about some sort of epigenetic chain where um, gene transcription has to translate into, let's say, changes to the circuit, do you see one of the principles or one of the mechanisms we can use is the, pr- the pruning process and the other one is the, the generation of spines as two yeah. separate processes? They're two separate processes. And the other thing we have to consider is um, which part of, if you think of the, of, of the cortical layers, which layers change? Do layers in each, do cells in each layer change the same? And my initial assumption was, well, of course, because the, the uh, column is a functional unit. Well, let's actually measure that. Well, it turns out it's not true. So layers two and three and five, for example, can change in the same way or opposite ways. What does that mean? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact that they're not, you can't predict from one layer to another layer. So it starts to get really complicated in there. So you're adding and subtracting spines. 
um, are this, are you measuring the same cells? Mm-hmm. Um, or are they different cells that are showing these changes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the techniques we have don't allow us to identify the particular type of pyramidal cell it is, what its characteristics are, and measure those uh, changes in spines. It's, it's technically possible to do it. Now, we just haven't done it. But it, it's pre- using molecular tricks, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And people will be doing that. Right. Yeah. But now what we see here is in, indeed a, a brain a brain that is hyperplastic at different timescales. Yes. And very sensitively tuned to changes in, in experience. Um, so, but now in some sense the experimental paradigms we use to probe that brain are, are by necessity simple because yes. otherwise we cannot control them. Yes, that's right. So... So to what extent are we actually getting the full picture here? So we're not. So there's another way you could do it in principle, and that is to use resting state fMRI and look at the connectome, if you like, mm-hmm. and see what in humans and see whether or not you can extract things doing that. I mean, that's obviously very expensive, but I think that's the route that people are going to go to say, okay, can we actually do this in a more sophisticated way uh, once we have the computing power to do it, mm-hmm. um, and see if we see differences, and my guess is we will. Right, but now the um, the other link to the substrate is then again this FGF two, yeah. right, which is sort of a, it, it's it's a growth modulator of yes. of, of the brain, and um, what what you showed, however, is FGF two does not have a very it doesn't have a non-specific effect. It seems rather specific in its its targeting of the brain. Right, so so can you say something about that mechanism of, of the action of FGF2? Well, it's related to where the receptors are densest. Mm-hmm. So if you look in visual cortex, for example, they're very sparse compared to prefrontal cortex or hippocampus. So the next question is, why the difference? And are there differences at different ages? Yes. The peak in the rat, anyway, uh, um, FGF receptor expression is day 10, postnatal day 10. That turns out to be the the age at which we get all kinds of wonderful effects that we don't see, say, at day five, which is only five days earlier, mm-hmm. but it makes a huge difference. Um, so the FGF is specific in, in terms of where it's found and in terms of age as to when it's most highly expressed. Mm-hmm. Now, why? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's obviously important for some reason. Um, we don't know what's controlling that. But that, that means there's a critical period also then for FGF too and its, its impact. Yeah, and uh, under normal conditions, how do you interpret that impact? Is that impact there to, to assist and that's to control a last growth push, of let's say specific brain areas, specific part of the neo of the cortex maybe, or so, what's so, the role of that? Yeah. So the question you want to ask is what's happening around day seven to twelve, mm-hmm. uh, so ten plus or minus two, uh, or three. Um, what's happening there that's different? And what's happening there that's different is you're starting to, migration is complete uh, for the most part, and you're starting to get great cell differentiation and the beginning of synaptogenesis. And so um, it's a little bit, I'll use a metaphor that might not be great, but if you think about pruning a rose bush in the spring or when it's a young rose, if you do it at the right time, you get proliferation. If you do it at the wrong time, mm-hmm. you might kill the, the rose. Mm-hmm. And so and I don't know why that is, but presumably it's related to something like this, so that at the, at the right time, it's primed to change. Let me give you another example, and that is if you kill 
the generation of neurons in utero um, at the right time, you, the brain can make up for that. It can, using x-rays, for example, um, the brain can make up for that and just overproduce as though nothing happened. That doesn't happen at other times in life. It's just at certain times the brain can do it. Is it just a party trick and it's just an accident? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of the x-rays, it probably mm-hmm. is. Uh, in the case of the uh, FGF, probably isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because associated with that, you also showed that at least certain areas of the cortex you can lesion early in development, and it looks like they will essentially regenerate. That's correct. But that seems to be very region-specific. It's very region-specific. It's in specific to regions that have a lot of endogenous FGF2, in, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so if you do it in other regions that are really just millimeters away, it doesn't happen. But if you introduce the FGF2 subcutaneously then it, at the right age, um, then it works. So which, which regions are those? Midline. Mm-hmm. So um, olfactory bulb, medial prefrontal cortex, and cingular cortex. Mm-hmm. Why, is the, why are those ones uh, the ones that um, show the effect? I think it's because the nursery of cells in the brain, is the subventricular zone, mm-hmm. is right under them. And so the cells can be produced there and migrate right e- quite easily. Um, they don't seem to migrate as well. So, for example, into more lateral cortical areas, there's a lot of stuff in the way. The signals that tell them to come may not get mm-hmm. to them and so on. Um, we don't know why that is. All we know for sure is that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we introduce FGF2, we can get cells to go places they wouldn't have normally gone. Um, is there? How do you compare those cells to the endogenous ones? Well, at least in regions like the motor cortex, which are close by, it, it's pretty similar. Um, if you're more lateral, we haven't really quantified it. I'm guessing it's going to be less similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all, all related to mechanics of the, of the progenitor cells getting there. Mm-hmm. But the FGF2, you earlier also told us that um, it would enhance if you want brain growth, right? Yes. In a non-specific way. And also induced by the tactile stimulation. Yes. But now in this in this recovery study, let's say, we lesion, we recover under the, the, the drive of, of uh, FGF2, it seems very specific. So that seems contradictory in it, some it, sense. It does. Because on the one hand, it's, it's like this uh, a factor that leads to non-specific, let's say, complexification and growth of the brain. But under conditions of a lesion, it becomes very specific. But so, so one explanation for that is that the brain is different. So the brain is mm-hmm. producing all sorts of things in response to the injury, which makes it a different brain. Mm-hmm. And so when you add when you add a spice to a dish uh, that you're cooking, it depends on what you're starting with in terms of the effect of that spice, right? So if you see the um, FGF as a spice in a sense, uh, a normal brain is different the makeup of that brain is different than in the injured brain, which is producing all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. um, that's trying to heal itself or make it worse, whatever. But there's mm-hmm. both both going on. But that would mean that there's another system yet again that is regulating that uptake of the FGF2. Yeah, and, and it may be it's glial cells. So in response to the injury, you're going to see the production of both um, astrocytes as well as microglia. And we know that the astrocytes at least... Uh, are producing all kinds of chemicals. Mm-hmm. And they produce FGF2, it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do the microglia do? Are they producing things that are um, 
having an effect too. We don't know the answer mm-hmm. to that. So the brains really are different. So we shouldn't be so surprised that the effect of any compound is not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. The lesion brain is different. But would that mean in your, as with the tactile stimulation, I generate um, FGF2, do I in parallel then drive a mechanism that controls its uptake? Or do you think it's more more unspecific than that? Because like maybe what you have to with tactile stimulation, I must drive up my FGF2 and I must start to engage my glia cells to make sure they sort of create the conditions in which uptake can can take yeah. place effectively. Yeah, that could very well be. But what, what, how, how do you think about it? In, do you have the simple interpretation or do you think it's really more complex than that? Well, in the injured brain, it's clearly more complex. Mm-hmm. In the experienced expectant case, um, it may be that simple, that the brain is expecting experiences, and when it gets those experiences, um, these things happen. The FGF2 goes up. Think about the visual system. The visual system is expecting visual input. It doesn't require very much to tune your ocular dominance columns, the stuff that um, Colin Blakemore did all mm-hmm. those years ago. Um, Minute. I don't recall the total n- number of minutes, but minutes of uh, visual experience is sufficient to satisfy the brain and prevent the effect of um, ocular uh, mm-hmm. closure. Right. So now, um, th- th- so this is largely done on the rats, and uh, th- there are some links to to human m- behavior, largely. Um, do you think that these lessons that you've now extracted from the red brain and red behavior about epigenetics generalize directly to the human case? Is the human case maybe even more susceptible to these epigenetic factors or less? I would say the human brain is more plastic. There are more neurons. They're more densely packed than any other species and certainly much more densely packed than rodents. Um, so, yes, I think that it's going to generalize, but I think the effects will actually be larger for that reason. Mm-hmm. It also has more white matter. Uh, so the gray matter, white matter ratio is, is totally different in humans than it is in uh, rodents in particular. And so what does that mean? Well, when we're, when we're studying treatments for stroke, I'm sure that it makes a big difference. Because mm-hmm. uh, you can have huge effects of white matter injury in humans, not so much in rats. Um, so we have to keep our eye on, on these these differences that are fairly gross. Mm-hmm. And of course, humans have regions that rats don't have. I mean, no rat talks, um, at least none that I've met. And so they don't have Broca's or Wernicke's area. So what, what effect are these experiences having on these language-related areas? Um, we're the only animals that produce music in the sense that we mean it, not birdsong. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean? We know that music has a huge impact on the brain. So, for example, if we looked at... Um, Cognition in older people, so say over 65, um, there's going to be a decline. And those people who are also musicians or who not professional but who learn to play instruments early, there's a benefit. So memory's better, attention's better, and so on. And, and the older you get, the bigger that effect is. Mm-hmm. So there's a reduction in, say, dementia in people who have music. What's it doing? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not changing as far as we know non-human brains but it's having a big impact on ours mm-hmm. so right I, yeah but also you mentioned that in, in some sense there might also be let's say unwanted side effects of some of the medications we use actually in a in a standard fashion if you you mentioned uh, the prozac yeah. uh, example that 
initially might look like a great idea to, to drive also brain development or brain adaptation, but maybe from an epigenetic perspective, it might be the wrong thing to do. Yeah. Um, so the story there is that, that we expected that, that fluoxetine, Prozac, would actually stimulate um, brain growth and we get bigger brains. And in con- we didn't. Um, we got smaller brains and brains that are less plastic. Uh, that we didn't expect that. And the doses are the same doses. In The amount in the blood is the same that, that women would, would be uh, getting or the babies would be mm-hmm. getting. Um, so, yeah, that turned out to be, mm-hmm. you can call it a side effect, an unfortunate right. consequence um, of the treatment of anxiety or, mm-hmm. or depression. So right now it is prescribed to pregnant women as well. It is. Mm-hmm. And there is a... Um, Suggestion that that it should not be prescribed for things like anxiety. Uh, try some other drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the drugs that's used more in Europe than in North America is valproic acid or valproate. It's used for epilepsy as well as anxiety and so on. And that turns out to have a link to autism. So the, the best model for developing autism in rats is to use valproate. Um, that's a very unfortunate side effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in England, in particular, there have been studies done showing a huge increase in all kinds of uh, neurodevelopmental problems in women who were given prescriptions for valproic acid for one of many reasons. Hmm. So there's an important lesson there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But now, so so you worked with rats for decades, mm-hmm. and in yeah, I've worked with people too, <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to people as well. But yeah. but but in some sense. How well do we understand rat behavior and the rat experience of the world? So Ian Wishaw and I have a book called The Behavior of the Laboratory Rat. Uh, it's edited. And so um, I think we understand a lot about the behavior of rats compared to the behavior of mice mm-hmm. or cats, for that matter, um, which aren't used much for behavioral studies anymore. So we know a lot about the behavior of rats. The problem is um, the sophistication in Measuring the, the behavior isn't always there. The people are so there's two ways to do it. One is to use what I'm going to call an endpoint measure. So, if we're looking at something like um, skilled reaching, how many pellets did you actually successfully reach for? But we can also ask the question differently and say, are the kinematics of the movements the same or are they different? So, we can see in animals that have adult strokes, we can give them treatments, and their endpoint measure appears to be normal. But the way they're doing it is quite different. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yes, we know a lot about the rat behavior, but the sophistication of the average researcher in terms of how you measure it um, still needs to be improved. Mm-hmm. And right. I'm, I'm guilty too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's But then where, where do you see the few, do you think Do you think that these attempts to, for instance, start to use uh, virtual reality with these kinds of animals is a step forward? Or do you think that's, that's not helping? By creating, in that sense, also more dynamic and more complex environments. So do you think you can use virtual reality in rodents? Well, it's already happening, right? People do it. People have yeah. rats run on, on, on little um, yeah. balls that float in the air, styrofoam balls. Yeah. And with that, you then drive a virtual reality display of an environment. So they run through the environment. People are measuring uh, play cell responses or grid cell responses yeah. using these setups. We know that it works in people. So if you have stroke patients and who have motor problems, by using virtual realities, you can get quite dramatic improvements. 
We don't know why they're improving, mm-hmm. but we know that, that that's happening for sure. People haven't really done those kinds of experiments in rats looking at um, the effects of, say, stroke, and can mm-hmm. you use virtual en- mm-hmm. environments to, to right. enhance it? Don't know. Yeah, we've been treating over 500 patients uh, with that approach here yeah. with, with really good outcomes. Yeah. So, so on humans, it works great. Yeah. You know? But now, so so, you you've been in this in this field now for for a long time. You also started life as a as a so-called red runner, or you came from another direction into that. My master's degree was uh, in ethology, hmm. so it was in animal behavior, um, and I was looking. But I was looking at rodents. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I worked with um, a variety of animals, including cats, and hamsters, gerbils, and rats. And then pretty much, I then spent time Montreal Neurological Institute studying people with brain injuries and trying to take the lessons I'd learned in terms of studying behavior in lab animals to people. Could you actually um, score their behavior and see similar effects? And the answer was, yeah, you can. Um, I didn't have the opportunity that I had at the Montreal Neurological Institute because there were so many patients when I left and went um, back to Alberta. So it was pretty much back to rats again. Mm. Um, But I think my experience at the MNI in terms of generating new behavioral tests that were based on my studies, mostly of cats, more so than rats, um, was successful. So it encourages me that, yes, there's going to be a good transfer. Mm -hmm. Right. So now, g- given given all this the experience you have in the study of rat or animal behavior or human behavior and, and the brain, if you would like to follow in that tradition, what's what's Brian's law that we should adhere to? One of them, I think, is what does this mean for people? So I think that it's really important that, that people who are studying rats know something about the human brain. They know something about the effects of experiences on the human behavior, because if you're doing it in a vacuum and you're just studying rats, it's useless. I mean, you, you really need to to have this broader perspective. And this was one of the reasons that Wisha and I wrote our textbook, Fundamentals of Human Neuropsychology, which is a, had more animals in it in the early days than in the seventh edition, but it really is trying to take the principles and understand how the human brain is working. I think you have to keep that in the back of your mind all the time, because if you don't, you end up studying epiphenomena, mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you're losing touch with uh, what's important. Right. So um, then five years from now, we're going to go visit your lab, and we're <laughs> going to check whether a prediction that you're going to share with, with me now uh, is actually confirmed or not. So what's, what's the key prediction that you would like to commit yourself to today that is the most important one to make progress in your, in your field in this time frame of five years? Well, at, at least in... Not in my field, but in my lab, uh, <laughs> would be understanding metaplasticity. That is the interaction of experiences, how they how they combine together to give you this phenotype down the road. Which ones are more important? Um, does the order make a difference? Uh, and so on. So mm-hmm. that would be sort of the the final push. That's the one. The other one is adolescence, because our emphasis has been in adults and in developing animals. But where are some of the biggest changes, especially in prefrontal cortex, adolescence. We've begun to look at the effects of treatments in adolescence, and they're different. And so let's just take, this is in our work, this is more more general. If you look at the effects of um, marijuana consumption, if I can use that 
term or nicotine consumption on adolescents, the incidence of psychotic episodes in the 20s is way higher than it would be in you if you started taking either of those drugs um, now post-30 or so. Um, so why is that? There's got to be some sort of change, epigenetic and otherwise, in response to the adolescent experience. Well, the, the adolescent brain is changing so rapidly, and I gave you the example this morning of, of uh, in the peri-adolescent period, as the prefrontal cortex starts to, to prune, you're losing 100,000 synapses a second. That's a huge change mm -hmm. in the brain. So any experiences that you're going to encounter while this is going on are going to have a huge impact. It, it's like a second sensitive period. We've got the early one, say, 0 to 3. Then this other one, say, age 10 to 16 uh, years. That's really going to um, determine who you're going to be. Mm -hmm. So we don't know anything about this. So that's the two things. So one is metaplasticity, and the other one is the adolescent brain. We right. need to understand it. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Well, Brian Cope, thank you very much for this conversation. You're welcome, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, wasn't that fun? That was just actually it was fun because you're forcing me to think about things in a different way because uh -huh. you're coming at it from a more human perspective, if you mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Um, and we tend to, well, I'm guessing you do too. Uh, in your own research, you sort of you have your favorite hypothesis, and you're doing this and then occasionally something happens over there and you say it's trivial exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. uh -huh. and you just keep chugging along mm -hmm. and so that's why I'm giving a lot of public talks mm -hmm. um, because of Fraser Mustard I mentioned this morning and the importance of educating the public on early experiences and whatnot but some of the questions I get from the public mm -hmm. are sort of whoa mm -hmm. uh, so in Canada we have a, a very bad history of dealing with our indigenous people um, and one of them in Canada, the, the Americans had a different solution, and that was to kill them all. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we said, no, let's, let's just take away their past and put them in what we called residential schools, and we'll make them white. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. Right. It, it, made, them wor it made it worse. Mm -hmm. So you end up with these horrible schools run by the Catholic Church mm -hmm. um, in which they were, these kids were maltreated, and now we don't have them anymore. There were, the last ones were closed in the early 60s, but the effects of those schools is still there. They're still there, yeah, right. And I, I gave a talk um, in northern Alberta, and there were a lot of uh, natives there, and gave a sort of simple spiel, and this one elder said, let me get this right. Are you giving me an explanation for why residential schools had such a profound impact on us? And mm -hmm. I said, yes. Why hasn't anybody told us this before? I said, I'm here, I'm telling you. Yeah. You're not... You're not to blame, mm -hmm. we now understand one mechanism as to how these residential schools could lead to all sorts of drug abuse. So let's correct it. Mm -hmm. Let's correct it. Let's get by it. Right. And mm -hmm. figure out ways in which we can uh, reverse the effects. Yeah, but that. Because these are cross generational that, effects. Of course. Yeah. And that might be still a long shot, right? To oh, now of have an influence on that. It'll take generations. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, but that's also from, from my perspective what we do here that. We, we definitely have a strong focus towards the society in everything we do, especially to stay to stay on track, to stay focused, to stay relevant, because otherwise it's very easy to just get sucked into your rabbit hole. Oh, for sure. And, you know, you get and, lost forever. And like Alice in Wonderland, you're just sort of wandering around. Exactly. It's all beautiful, right? That's all beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we're in the clinic very prominently, a lot of stroke work we do, uh, also farming out to other 
pathologies, not Parkinson's disease, we're looking at them policy. I think cerebral paralysis is an important target. Look at education because I think the educational system is completely broken. We have to... This is specific to Spain or... No, Europe, more, yeah. it's all European projects that, that we're doing. But, but in all cases, think more... The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems. Do whatever you want. A project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. Huh? Yeah, 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 I will. Don't worry. Um, no, so I was wondering about this distinction between learning and epigenetics, right? And this, this has been quite a debate. And in some sense, we can impose also the question, okay, are we back in a more Lamarckian view on, on evolution? Because now we were looking at experience-dependent impact across generations, right? So, so what's your position on that? Well, I think in part you've hit it on the, on the head. We are getting a little Lamarckian, and Lamarck didn't have any way of measuring what he thought he was getting was something different than it turns out it is. But he, he had some truth to it. But um, we do know that behavior itself produces profound effects on the brain. So this is most um, non-psychologists would be surprised at this, I think, that behavior changes the brain. They're going to think the brain changes mm-hmm. behavior. Well, that's true as well. So you've got this interaction. So uh, the experiment that I was mentioning is that if we um, train animals on a whole bunch of behavioral tests, uh, cognitive motor and so on, and just look in the brain, do we see changes? We see changes all over the place. Okay, what if we give them something like um, nicotine or amphetamine? We see changes all over the place, but they're not as big. Uh, if we give them the, those drugs and then later put them on the behavior, do all the behavioral tests, we see a much bigger effect. So this is a metaplastic effect. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we've underestimated how big the effect of actually learning, if you like, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. on the brain. It's really producing profound, profound effects. And this takes us back to little, the children and their vocabulary early on. They're learning all of this stuff, and it's producing these profound, long-lasting mm-hmm. changes. So when we sent this paper in, showing and tried to make the point that the behavioral training was as big or bigger in its effect than the drugs, the reviewer said, well, this is trivial. I mean, the behavior isn't all that important in understanding changes in the brain, and he didn't get it at all, so we obviously didn't describe it effectively. But mm-hmm. um, for psychologists, it's, it's obvious. You're going to say, well, of course, mm-hmm. it's going to change the brain. But, now the, but the point then is also that we would have a situation where, let's say the mother has a certain exposure, this carries over to the offspring. Mm-hmm. But you could also argue, well, it's not necessarily Lamarckian because in, in the genome, there are, let's say, different phenotypic programs. And, and they are just triggered in an experience-dependent way. Right? Is this, is this how you think about it? Yes, mm-hmm. that's how I think about it. Right. So then, um, so if we then are, can be configured along these different epigenetic uh, programs... How big is that? Would that repertoire be? Is it only like stress, no stress, or do you think this is a much more high-dimensional space? Oh, it's more more than one-dimensional for mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Yeah, because because the stress itself is producing changes in behavior, um, it's producing changes in cognition, uh, and, and so on. I'll, I'll call that a behavior as well, but I, people mm-hmm. tend not to think of it that way. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we're we're getting a multi-dimensional change um, from mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. That's the one I still wanted to have. Okay. All right, we're done. (laughs) Thank you. Okay.
The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.